Welcome to Dungeon Designers Guild. I am your guild master, Stephen Leviathan. You are listening to Season 1, Episode 7 of DDG Pod, where we welcome to the guild hall a designer who alone has brought us two of the most respected old-school renaissance RPGs. It would seem most OSR games are designed out of nostalgia, either by players who remember fondly older rule sets that have now gone out of print, or by current players who wish to recreate the tone and ease of gameplay previous generations experienced. Our guest on this episode asked the simple question, what about future generations? What could the OSR community be doing better to appropriately raise and indoctrinate the role players of tomorrow? The result was two incredibly popular games that, while enjoyed by many seasoned role players around the world, were originally intended to instruct children in the ways of dungeoneering. So, without further ado, let's get on to our main event. On Dungeon Designers Guild, we have encountered a sinewy, hawkish, rough, disheveled, eccentric, ambitious, vengeful, rambling, condemned magician, prolific YouTuber, proprietor of the Questing Beast blog, and designer of the drive-through RPG Adamantine best-selling games, Maze Rats and Knave, Ben Milton. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And where is the hazardous maze that you're calling in from? I'm calling in from a currently cold and rainy Phoenix. Okay. Is it usually cold and rainy this time of year? Usually not. This is like one of the three days that we get that's cold and rainy. So we are <laughs> savoring every minute of it. Excellent. Okay. Is that where you're from originally? No. Originally, I grew up in Portland, Oregon. So I spent most of my life there. I moved down to Phoenix about eight years ago for a teaching job, and I've been there ever since. Okay. So you grew up in Portland. And is Portland where you started gaming? I guess so. Yeah. So in terms of role-playing games, I didn't really get heavily into that until, well, basically my first year in Phoenix. My first year in Phoenix, I met Andrew Armstrong, who ran the Dawnforge cast YouTube channel, which used to be this really big RPG channel. He was teaching at the same school I was at, and I ended up in his home game. And then we got into Pathfinder, and that's when I started playing consistently. I was really aware of role-playing games before then. I'd played like a couple sessions, like here or there as a teenager, but I never had a consistent group to play with, and I wasn't confident enough to start my own game. I think I tried that one time when I bought, what did I buy? The, my first role-playing game that I purchased was the Lord of the Rings role-playing game by Decipher, which came out right after the movies. And I bought that because I was into the movies and I tried to run one session with my friends and it was a total disaster because I had no idea what I was doing or even what a game looked like. There wasn't any YouTube. I couldn't see examples of it. So that was kind of a disaster, but I've always been like a fan of the concept of role-playing games and of D&D in general. And I would you know page through third edition on bookshelves whenever I saw it. But yeah, I've been doing RPGs pretty consistently for about eight years here in Phoenix. Okay. And you said when you first started playing seriously, that was with Andrew Armstrong, and that was actually a 
Pathfinder game? That was Pathfinder. Correct. Okay. And then at some point you must have gotten around to playing D&D or I guess maybe not. Did you ever get around to playing D&D? We did. We played Pathfinder for two years, maybe until fifth edition came out. Soon after fifth edition came out, we switched over to playing that. And then we played that for a year or two before that group just sort of uh, fell apart for a variety of reasons. People moved away. But then, so that was when I started doing 5e or D&D more consistently. And then from there, I moved more into the OSR. It was really a blend of things because after playing just Pathfinder for a year or two, before getting into 5e, I really had the story game phase where I was really fascinated by the like theory work and the weird designs that people in the story game community were coming up with, especially people from the Forge and places like that. And I bought a whole bunch of them and I tried out a whole bunch of different designs. I played some Microscope. I played a bunch of Powered by the Apocalypse, some Dungeon World. I played a lot of World of Dungeons. That's actually a really fun game and a few other ones as well, but it just turned out that it wasn't my thing. I kept trying to enjoy them, but it wasn't what I was looking for. And then at around the same time, I started getting into the blogosphere and discovering all of these old school blogs. And that was really my entry point because I was reading these posts and it was like, whoever is writing these things, I need to be in a game where these sorts of things exist, or I want to hang out with the kind of people who have these kind of ideas. And so I started buying a few OSR books and I immediately knew that this was what I was looking for, that the focus on exploration and a sense of wonder and discovery was the juice that I was trying to get out of role-playing games. And it was in the OSR where I could find that the best. So then I just kind of plunged headfirst into that. I got onto Google Plus. And then as my group was transitioning into 5e, I was pretty hardcore into the OSR. And I didn't really convert them, but I ended up just having to do it on my own, mostly with my students at the school I was teaching at. You're running OSR games with your students. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Did you start like a hobby club or? Yep. It was an after school club. I would run it once or twice a week, depending on the year that I was teaching. And originally it was a role-playing game club. So I was trying a whole bunch of different stuff. I was running Dungeon World with them or World of Dungeons for a while. That was okay. And then I tried started uh, some Into the Odd and that worked really well. But Into the Odd is not really fantasy and I wanted the kids to be able to play more fantasy stuff. So I immediately started hacking Into the Odd and that turned into the very first edition of Maze Rats, which was an Into the Odd hack, which you can actually still buy. I think it's in a supplement for Into the Odd called Additional Materials. So you can still get that today. And then that was really the first thing I ever published. Okay, so what other OSR games, I guess, were you playing with the kids or trying out? You said, well, I I don't think Dungeon World really is OSR, but Into the Odd falls in that category. Yeah, that was the main one that I was playing with them. I think that was the only really published OSR game I was playing with them, because soon after that, I immediately started hacking it. And then that evolved into uh, into Maze Rats. And then I was playing Maze Rats with them pretty consistently. Okay. So you hacked into the odd to get Maze Rats. What sort of changes did, were we looking at as far as, I know that there's a tonal change that you were looking for, but what, what was into the odd not doing that you wanted Maze Rats to do? Originally, it was just adding spells and things like that into it. And then a lot of the design changes that I do in games are me just like finding a, a mechanical aesthetic that just jives with me. I wanted to do everything that was D6s and Into the Odd was D20s. That was partially because I wanted the game to run entirely off of six-sided dice. So I was trying to create this perfect game to run at after-school clubs and ideally games that the kids would be able to run themselves. So to do that, I tried to strip everything down to as simple a basis as possible and getting rid of weird dice was part of that. So I got rid of the 20-sided dice and added D6s and then I think the system where 
where you're rolling 2d6 and trying to hit 10 was kind of derived from World of Dungeons. But the actual means of making checks didn't matter all that much to me as long as you were using 2d6. And then from there, I started creating random tables so they could get randomized characters. And those were all those all had to be based on d6. And just six options was too little. So I expanded it to 36 options so you could roll 2d6 on that. And then that slowly snowballed into you know page after page after page of random tables so that they could generate everything. And so taking a look at Maze Rats, I mean, it's not terribly long, but most of it is random tables for that purpose. Yes. Okay. So we're, we're moving from D20 to six-siders. What sort of accommodations did you have to make? For instance, let's see, we have the, the danger roll is what you started calling challenges, right? Yep. Yep. And that was mostly just to try to get them to focus on only rolling dice when there was actual danger involved. Calling it danger rolls was just to help get them in that mindset. A lot of the design was just taking things out. At the same time that I was running this club, I had other teachers that I knew running other role-playing game clubs at the same school, and they were often running 5th edition or even Pathfinder. And I immediately saw the problem there, which was that they would get the kids into the club and the kids would spend multiple sessions, like over the course of several weeks, just making their characters and trying to learn all of the rules. And I'm like, whatever I make, it has to avoid that. So I tried to just strip everything down so they could make characters in five minutes flat and they could learn the rules as they were playing. So a lot of my design decisions were just focused on on doing that. It was very much refined by playing the game with kids and letting that lead where my design went. So the school had multiple concurrent after-school RPG groups? Yes. What ages are we working with here? 10-year-olds, mostly. Huh. Yeah. The one I'm at right now is doing the same thing. We can't have clubs right now because of COVID, but on in years when we don't have COVID, then yeah, I was running a club for fifth graders. And then at the, in the high school, they had a club where they were running a bunch of different stuff, story games. Some people were running mouse guard and a little bit of dungeon world, I think stuff like that. Okay. I don't remember having much or any school sponsored role playing when I was a kid. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah. I don't know how unusual it is now. I mean, it's always been fairly normal just for the the school network that I work in. There's just a lot of, you know, 20 or 30 something teachers who are all fairly nerdy. And so running after school club has also been a big thing. So the jump from that to running RPGs was never too big, but Maybe it is unusual. I don't know. I don't have a lot of experience outside of this one weird network of schools where I work. All right. So we are looking for streamlining and simplicity. And so you simplify in Maze Rats, the uh, ability scores down to, it's just the the three, right? Strength, dexterity, and will. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah. Okay. And, and aside from that though, I guess something that you do stress at the beginning is that you want them to mostly approach things where they, they don't have to roll for anything, right? Correct. Okay. So how do you, do you have to kind of coax that out of them since they're kids or? Yeah. I mean, when I was running it, I just tried to model it as much as possible. So that's typically how I teach people not only how to play RPGs, but how to run them because my goal is to get these kids to be running their own games. And eventually I did get them there. So what I would do is that as I was running the game, they would say what they would want to do. And then I would very briefly talk through my own thought process as to like, why am I making the decisions that I'm making? Right. Or I would just say out loud, oh, you want to do that? That sounds like it's pretty simple. So you don't need to roll for it. Or like, oh, you probably should roll for that because it's dangerous. What do you think a good consequence would be? And I would propose something and they would probably agree with it. And then I would like set how difficult it was going to be. Do they have advantage or disadvantage? And then they would roll for it. So they would always get to see what I was thinking as I was running the game. And I think that helped a lot. I wasn't like a black box that was just issuing proclamations. I was just a person who was playing the game alongside them. Excellent. And I'm sure that was very beneficial for the fledgling role players that you were working with. Okay. So in the few instances where they do have to roll dice, they're always rolling. 2d6 with the goal of reaching 10. 
unless they have advantage, in which case you would have them roll three and take the highest two. Is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, if you're rolling 2d6, the odds of getting 10 are pretty low, and that was intentional. So as you start off the game, you're usually going to fail danger rolls, which is because they should be dangerous. So this should the you should have a low odds of succeeding by default. But if you arrange things in your favor so that it's not as dangerous anymore, you get advantage. And now you do have a pretty good shot at making the roll. So those mechanics were there just to incentivize them to think about their environment and to think how they could arrange things in their favor rather than in a lot of other games, what you would do is you would just look at your character sheet, you'd find like your biggest stat, and then you would just try and always roll that. And you try and use the character sheet to your advantage. I wanted to incentivize them to use more critical thinking skills and to look at the situation rather than the mechanics of the game. So that's how I tried to incentivize that. Okay. And you mentioned at first they'd be failing a lot of roles, but even throughout the game, reaching 10 with the ability scores wouldn't be very easy because their ability scores start out pretty low and stay pretty low throughout the gameplay. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. You don't have a really high ability scores. They do go up as you level up and you can go up to level seven is the maximum, but they never get tremendously high. You never get to a point where danger rolls are going to be trivial or something you don't have to think about. So that was a goal as well. And why did we keep it at a a seven level limit? I think that was the point at which getting more hit points or getting more attack bonuses or things like that would have made challenges more trivial. And so I wanted to stop at that point because I didn't want to get to a state where you had so many hit points that you didn't have to worry about combat or you had ability scores so high that you didn't feel like you were in danger when you were making rolls. So I wanted to restrict it within that range. Okay. And, and did a lot of your kids get to level seven? And then as you say in the, in the book, roll a first level character? <laughs> I don't think uh, anyone actually got to level seven. Deaths were pretty frequent. We had a lot of character deaths and that I tried to normalize that as much as possible. I think one girl got to like level four or five. And what was great is that she was like genuinely proud of that. So she was sort of like, hold that in the face of the other kids. Like I have a level four character and she had gotten a level four character because she had been clever and she had done what she needed to do to survive. It was typically the boys who would take all the the dumb risks, right? Just jumping off of cliffs or running straight at monsters and things like that. And so they would just die a lot and they would tend not to get very many levels. And that was fine. It was really up to them how they wanted to play. But I really wanted to allow students to have a sense of pride when they did get a high level and to have strong rewards for that. So I was happy to see that that did happen, at least for some students. And for the leveling, you have a static amount that's, I mean, it's, it's Pretty simple here. If, they, if they're just there, they get one XP. If they overcame a difficult challenge, they get two XP. And if they impressed you, they get three XP. And then the, the levels we're looking at, it's just two to get to level two, six to get to, I assume, cumulatively six to get to level three yeah. and 12, et cetera. Right. And then they all get basically the same sort of bonuses as they advance, right? I mean, you get the bonus to health here or ability scores or... Yeah, there are choices you have to make. So you typically get two more hit points with every level up and oftentimes you get to make a choice like either add one to your attack bonus gain a new path which are sort of like skill packages or gain a new spell slot depending on the general type of character that you're trying to make or you can add one to an ability bonus but you can choose which ability you want to do so it's not completely prescribed for you you don't have a ton of choices i don't have like feet trees or something like that no but you do have these uh, the paths or they can get a, a spell slot so as far as the ability paths what, what are some examples of what we're looking at there so that's sort of the thief equivalent so basically there's three different types of characters you can make if you want to be a fighter type character then you're allowed to get a 
attack bonuses and no one else gets attack bonuses. Basically, you're just you're more likely to hit things and do more damage. If you want to be more of a thief or a specialist type of character, then you get to choose one of these four paths. And those are Briarborn, Fingersmith, Roof Runner, or Shadowjack, which are just kind of four different archetypes of roguey characters. So the f- first one, Briarborn, you're good at tracking, foraging, and survival. Fingersmith, you're good at tinkering, picking locks and pockets. Roof Runners are good at doing parkour, basically. And Shadowjacks mm-hmm. are sneaky guys. And if you just choose one of those, then you are going to get advantage on any checks that are related to your package of skills. And uh, yes, yeah, so you, you can get more than one of those. It's been a little while since I played Maze Reds, actually. Yeah, but you can gain more than one path as you level up. Okay. Are they kind of channeled into those where if you're a magic user, you're always getting new spells? Or can you start out as a Briarborn and then add a magic option later on? Uh, typically, the way that I played it is you just have to pick one of them and you're kind of stuck with that. You certainly could do a, a situation where you can take abilities from more than one of those types, though. The, the game wouldn't break or anything like that. All right. As far as the magic system is concerned, if they do choose that as a, as their class, if they're a magic user, can you describe a little bit about your magic system and how you arrived at it? Yeah, this took me a little while and it ended up being, I think, people's favorite aspect of the game. It's my favorite aspect. Originally, I had, I think even back in the Into the Odd version, I had ways of random creating spells just by picking different keywords, usually kind of a subject and a verb or an adjective and a noun. That was uh, another way you could do it. So you get like these two, these short little two word spell descriptions, and then you could cast them in the original into the odd version. I had like a whole system where you would choose like what rank of power it had, and then you could spend more health points or something like that. So you would have a greater effect or longer duration. I had like a whole system there and it was a little complicated. And I think it was just too much for the kids and it ended up with too much negotiation at the table, which wasn't a lot of fun. And so I kept trying to look for ways to just simplify it down to as small of a kernel as I could. And then what I came up with was you have a certain number of spell slots, starting with one, and then it can go up to four if you keep choosing spell slots. And they just work like slots in your head where you stick a spell and the spells are randomly generated. And then after you cast the spell, you fire it off and it disappears. It's gone. You cannot cast that spell again. If you want to fill up your spell slots when you sleep, you have to roll new random spells. So uh, magic users are very much into, I guess what would be called like wild magic or chaos magic or something like that, where every spell that they cast is completely unique and is randomly generated. So magic users are my favorite class to play generally in role-playing games. And I think they're really fun to play in Maze Rats, especially if you like that chaotic aspect, because the whole game is going to be about figuring out what spells you have. You may negotiate a little bit with a dungeon master as to how the spell is going to work. Usually it's fairly obvious, and it's all about figuring out how to use that spell in the context that you're in. So you can have, let me see, we have a table right here. I can pick a random spell. Maybe you have something called Summoning Serpent, or you could have a spell called Enveloping Ghost, or even, let's see, you can combine an element and a form to be like Slime Ray. And you'll be in a a crazy situation and you think, okay, I have a slime ray. What possible good is a slime ray in this situation where I have to like convince the king to give me something? And so it's all about thinking outside the box and figuring out how your spells could be used to your advantage. And that's the most fun part because you, you don't choose what you have. You can't choose the hand that you're dealt. You just have to figure out how to use it. Right. I think a lot of people do really love this system. So you roll a D6 and that gives you one of these two columns on this chart. You roll a D6 again, that gives you uh, the row 
that you choose from, you could end up with something like physical effect plus ethereal form or yeah. ethereal effect plus physical element. And then you have all of these charts that you roll on to get what those are. So I got like lava bolt, which I mean, that one's pretty obvious. Like, But if I had that, I'm, I'm shooting lava at somebody. How do I resolve? Does the GM just determine how much damage something like that would do? Or how does that work? I have like guidelines that are built in here. I think the damage typically does like a D6 of damage for minor spells. If you have something like, I don't know, like a torrent or like a river of lava, then the game master would have to come up with a ruling on how much damage that would do. I usually say between one and six dice of damage for something that's really powerful. But the whole goal here was to not worry too much about balance. And I can do that because the spells are all one-time use. So if you get like a really powerful spell that is extremely effective in the situation you're in, like that's awesome. It's like rolling a critical. It's like you just got the perfect thing for that situation and you're going to use it, but guess what? It's gone. So you're not going to be able to abuse it or spam it. You have to deal with whatever you get next. So it adds a lot of chaos to the game. And I think it doesn't really unbalance stuff because it's so unpredictable. Okay. And the spells can go wrong as well? Usually not. It doesn't really have a spell effectiveness chart or anything like that. I do have a table on this page for magical catastrophes, Mm -hmm. um, but those aren't necessarily related to the, the spells. It's more just like things that you could use in other contexts. But it would be very easy to add on something like where you had to make a will danger roll every time you cast a spell or have a magical catastrophe if you wanted to really turn up the level of chaos. Right. Actually, next to the adjectives and nouns that form the spells themselves, we have mutations, insanities, and then omens slash magical catastrophes. So how do we end up with those, especially the mutations and the insanities? Yeah, that stuff isn't like built into the magic system at all. I just included it on that table because they were like magic related, but you could have spells that like caused mutations. You could have like a mutating something. I forget if that's on my list. There's a lot of things on this list. But you could have spells that cause mutations or cause some insanity, and then you would have another table to roll on. So they could be useful in that situation. Ah, okay. Yeah, mutations on here, maddening is on here. So I can see where those come in, but it's not the sort of thing you see in some games where you failed and because of that, something terrible is happening to you or potentially. Yeah, it's not. that's a, I guess, more of a Warhammer fantasy situation. Yeah, I don't have magical catastrophes built in. Right, that is one of the more unique aspects of this game because even though you were basing this on into the odd this is not a magic system found in that game this is something you developed on your own through trial and error with the kids right yeah i mean i'd seen other games that had random spell generators and i really wanted to make my own so i ended up with one that's quite elaborate so there's i don't know i did the math at one point there's hundreds of thousands of possible spells that you can get there are a lot of potential fun outcomes i'm curious though what other games with random spells were you looking at when you were designing maze rats there was one what is it called freebooters on the frontier which is a powered by the apocalypse game that has random spell generation so that was one inspiration i was also looking at stuff like dungeon crawl classics which doesn't have spell generation but it does the thing where every time you cast a spell there's tons of different effects that can go off so that was in there too and then i just tried to like shrink everything down so it was as simple to use as possible okay do you recall any particular examples from when you were playing of spell uses that you thought were particularly interesting or clever ideas that came from the kids or anything but it's been years since i've actually played it since i mostly play like nave now oh there was one where i played an online game where someone cast they got a spell called nullifying beacon and they were fighting a dragon or a lizard of some sort. This was in my, one of Michael Prescott's one page adventures. I forget what it's called. And the thing with this monster, every time you would kill it, it would cast this spell that would rewind time and you'd have to fight it again over and over again. So you're trapped in this loop. And he had just randomly rolled a spell called like nullifying beacon and he cast it. And I just ruled that it created this 
pulsing beacon of you know negative magical energy and cancel the monster's effect so they could break out of the time loop. And that was just by coincidence that he had the right spell for that. If he hadn't had that, he would have had to think of something else, I guess. I've had people roll up spells like a chariot that swings by and unlocks all the doors in the room or something like that. Just like the <laughs> weirdest stuff will come up. And like sometimes I have no idea how to how to even rule on it. So a lot of times I let the player give me a plausible way that they want to use it. And if it's even you know remotely close to what the, the words say, I'll usually just give it to them because they're only going to get it to use it once anyway. And they really enjoy doing that. All right. Excellent. So beyond that, then we would move on, I guess, if uh, if you were paging through Maze Rats to the the monsters and animals section, which is also another fun section because you can end up with creatures in combination. Mm -hmm. And so I assume it was a similar thought process, but can you talk us through, through this a little bit as well? I think by this point, I was just realizing that I could break every aspect of a role-playing game into a series of tables. And I just like went crazy for several months, just like making tables for everything. But yeah, so I, monsters are broken down into a whole bunch of different categories or features that a monster might have. I don't necessarily have a process for creating a monster. I just have lots of different options that you can use while making one. So I have a table for aerial animals, terrestrial animals, and aquatic animals. A good way to make a monster is just to combine two different animals. So that's always a fun thing to do. I have a list of monster features that are just like physical things you would have, like a beak or a claw. Monster traits, which are more like weird things about you, like being iridescent or fungal. Monster abilities, which are more actual supernatural powers, like camouflaging or breath weapon or electric. I have one for tactics. I have one for their personality, one for their weakness. You can roll on all of these. The problem is that I've discovered that if you roll on all of the tables at the same time, you tend to get these very gonzo wacky things, where it's it's usually more effective to just just roll on like three of them because then you get just a couple weird features and it's easier to gel those together into something that works. Do you always just roll three or do you have a way to determine how many you're going to roll? Oh no, I just pick them at random. I'll, I'll just roll on a couple of them and if it feels good, I'll stop. And if I need more, I'll just roll on another one. If I get too much stuff where it doesn't make any sense, I'll just cross something off and roll on a different table. It's not an exact science. Okay. And do you do that live during the game ever for random encounters? Oh, no. You, you're just prepping. Yeah, it's usually just for prep. You could use it for random encounters. Like there are spells that cause you to summon things. So there's no reason why you couldn't just like summon a creature from the beyond and just roll up a random monster right there. It would take like a minute if you wanted to do that. Right. You end up with an acid blood scorpion frog. and Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is an actual result from these tables. Yeah. So, okay. And then how do you determine the stats for the monsters? Because those aren't set either. Right. So you're going to have to just use your best judgment. I have some guidelines over on the side of that page, just where you picture what your monster is and you try and figure out, is this like a weak monster, an average monster or strong? Is it fast? Is it slow? And just by coming up with these verbal descriptions, I give you stats that more or less map onto those things. So just by having a good sense of the in-world capabilities of the monster, you can get stats pretty quickly. Not that stats are terribly important in this kind of game, but you can get them if you, want, if you need them. Okay. After that, we end up with sort of more information on characters or you have random names and things like that. There's no race system as far as or ancestry system really, although there are some aspects as far as background and things like that, right? Yeah. The assumption is that everyone is human. I think a lot of the inspiration came from games like Lamentations of the Flame Princess, where it was more historical, where you were more just like a bunch of people and then you were exploring dark places and coming into encounters with just crazy monsters from another dimension. So yeah, the assumption is that everyone's human. I guess you could easily create a random table for elves, dwarves, and so on. I 
just never found adding that stuff on made that much of a difference. Like it doesn't really affect how you play the game unless you play like every dwarf, like they're like a drunk Scottish person, which is just kind of boring. So I just tend to ignore fantasy races in my games generally. Yeah, but it's optional. Okay. So as you mentioned, after a while, the game just becomes a ton of random tables and it's it's all great stuff. You can roll for appearances, physical details, mannerisms, hobbies, all kinds of things. Yep. And it's just up to the players which tables they want to roll on. There's no overarching randomization that says, get to this page, roll a d10 and roll on that many tables or something like that? Yeah, I mean, for characters in general, I have like, let's see, like 24 tables and you're welcome to roll on all 24 tables to make a character. But similarly with monsters, you'll end up with these very weird characters that don't like cohere together very well. So I tend to advise people, it's not in the book, but I just advise people to roll on just a couple of them until you get something that is uh, appealing or at least makes sense together. But I have all of these tables. These are mostly for prep for creating NPCs if you just need information. So a lot of these you would roll on them as you need them. Like if you need, uh, if you have a guide and you like think, oh, it'd be fun if this guy had some sort of secret that the players have to un- uncover. I have a table of secrets. Or if you need to have him to have a relationship to someone else, I have that. But yeah, doing this for everyone, I think would be overkill. Making a character that you're playing, I think is usually pretty minimal. Okay, so it's just sort of as needed. And that's most of it. I mean, what is it? A dozen pages here, it looks like. And it's mostly the random tables. Let me get into you know equipment and things like that, which have some pretty easy stats. There is a, a haggle for prices. Players may have to haggle for prices mechanic listed here, which is kind of amusing. And then, of course, you have tables for the game master as well, as far as cities and regions and things like that. And the maze, which would be a dungeon, I take it. Yep. And then a very short couple of pages about prepping the game, yeah. running the game, and that kind of rounds it out. So in addition to playing it with the kids, did you also have a group of adults that you were playing it with as well? I occasionally did one shots online with other people, but by and large, I was running games every week with my students at the club. That's where I did most of my gaming. Right. And as you said, it was originally put together to play with your students and that was going very well. At what point did you decide you wanted to send this out into the world? It was mostly once the game master's advice was done because I made up all of the random tables. But the fun part, in a sense, was combing through the whole OSR blogosphere. And I had like a Word document where I was taking all of the best advice that I could find that was just concrete, actionable advice about how you run a game and you make it simple and enjoyable for everyone and low stress and low prep. And I just found all the advice like that that I could. And I tried to boil it down to like one paragraph and it'd be like a whole blog post. And I just had to keep boiling it down. And once I had something that I was happy with, where I felt like I had all the best advice that I'd learned boiled down, then I felt like it was probably ready to go. And I'd been playing it for a long time and I couldn't think of any other uh, random tables to add. So that was a, that was a limit too. And, and to the point where I could tell that the kids were ready to run it on their own, um, which they eventually did because you can use like the whole page of random tables for dungeon design to make your own dungeon pretty easily. And then you want a monster to put in it, you can roll up a random monster. You want items, you can do that. At one point, I had a whole club session where I'm like, in this session, we're not going to play any role-playing games. Instead, we are going to create a dungeon. And then next session, one of you is going to run the game for the for the rest of the students. And so they got really into that. They were all just like drawing a network of rooms and corridors and then just filling it with stuff that they were randomizing from the game. And by the next session, they were all running the game with each other. And that was a, a good indication that the game was ready. 
Excellent. And you then decided to do what with it? How did you initially publish it? I just put it on drive-through RPG. I think it was it was pay what you want originally, but it, it really took off really quickly. And I was I was seeing that I was getting like hundreds of downloads, especially since by this point I had my YouTube channel, which I'd started actually near the beginning of my teaching career. Because I'd met Andrew Armstrong, and he already had a channel, and I'm like, hey, that sounds like something I could do. So I just started doing book reviews and map making tutorials. So by the time Maze Rats, I felt like it was you know pretty well done. I had somewhere between five and 10,000 probably subscribers. And so I could uh, do an overview of the thing that I'd made just as I put it on DriveThruRPG and that helped publicize it and it kind of took off from there. Certainly. So then after Maze Rats was rather successful, you had quite a a strong following already uh, with the YouTube channel and with the blog. How did Maze Rats get us to Nave? Were there any projects in between or is Nave the next thing that you worked on from there? I think originally Nave was called Apprentice D&D which was sort of my take on basic D&D because I was playing 5th edition at the time and I was trying to find a way to take 5e and similar to Maze Rats just like boil it down to something really simple and fast to teach because although 5th edition is way easier to teach than Pathfinder there's still like a lot of steps you have to go through it still took me about an hour to teach a group of kids how to all make characters and get them set up which was just still way too slow for me so what happens with almost all the games that I create is they go through this very long process of me just like in a Word document typing up ideas that I have and messing around with the format and picking different fonts and stuff. And then it goes through like 12 different versions of this where I change all of the mechanics over and over and over until it ends up in a format that I like. And that's what happened to Nave. There's a whole bunch of earlier versions of Nave that are all called different things that are probably floating around the internet, or at least they were on G+, so maybe they're all gone now. But the idea for Nave was to try and create a simple D&D-like system that, unlike Maze Rats, was going to be very compatible with typical D&D modules because I wanted to be able to run a lot of the OSR uh, modules that I had for my students. And you can run them using Maze Rats, but there's just a lot of conversion that you have to do. And I wanted to get the students just into the tradition of, you know, all the standard D&D stuff, what a D20 is, roll 3D6 for your scores and stuff like that. So that was the impulse. So it kind of grew out of the love of these OSR modules and wanting to run them. Other than the conversions, did you have any particular issues trying to run OSR modules with Maze Rats before you went to Nave? Uh, It was mostly conversion stuff. But also, you know, I, yeah, I'd say it was mostly converting. Like if one of my students wanted to run an OSR module, like, I don't know, Tomb of the Serpent Kings or something like that, uh, they would have a very hard time doing conversions. So I wanted to kind of spare them that. And it was an interesting design challenge, which is where a lot of my design work comes from. I'm just like, how can I take 5e or a D&D like structure or a compatible structure and make that as simple as possible. And so once I was just on that track, my brain just like kept coming up with different versions of it until I found something that I liked. Okay. And so Nave isn't a descendant of Maze Rats. It's a simplification of fifth edition D&D and other versions of D&D. Is that correct? Yeah, originally. I mean, if you look at it now, there's not a lot of 5e really left in it. Mm. It's it's compatible with D&D stuff because it uses D20s for your rolls and it has armor class and attack bonuses and saving throws. Although the math for them is a little bit different, they still map onto most D&D stuff pretty cleanly. Originally, when I was working on this, it was you only went up to level 10 and it was a lot like 5e where you had your standard 3 through 18 ability scores 
and you had, you know, every other one would give you a plus bonus. And there was like, you could be a wizard or you could be a fighter. I could boil everything down. So there's only two classes, wizard and fighter. And they each had like separate mechanics. But then eventually even that got boiled down until it was just a classless system. So it was a long process of just simplifying things further and further until it wasn't really 5e anymore, but you could still run D&D stuff with it. Okay. And you mentioned several mechanics that players would find familiar. What sort of mechanics would the average player run into that would be unique or different or innovative that would stick out specifically in Nave? So the idea was to put everything on a one through 10 score, because I've always found it a little bit confusing how D&D is kind of on this three through 18 score, but how the numbers don't really correspond to anything or they don't map onto the bonuses. It's just like, it's another weird step that you have to try and teach, especially kids who are just like, wait, uh, what? I have a 15, but that means I add a plus three. And it's just like, it's very arbitrary. So I wanted to try and make things more intuitive. So your, your six ability scores, which are your standard D&D scores, your standard six abilities, the names are all the same, are now on a one through 10 rating. And whenever you try and make a ability check or whatever you want to call them, a saving throw, it's the same thing in my system. You roll a D20, you add your number, and you're trying to get a 16 or higher. So the idea there is that if your ability score is at one, then you're going to have about a 25% chance of succeeding. I think it's actually 30% chance of succeeding. But then by the time you get to 10, you now have a 75% chance of succeeding. So you go from about a 25% chance to a 75% chance from the lowest to the highest. Everything kind of stays within that range, which makes things very manageable. So you're never going to be overwhelmingly successful or always going to fail. There's always going to be a chance either way, but you're going to be able to see that very intuitively across the the one through 10 score. And then another thing, interestingly, that that maps onto is that if you look at a lot of OSR modules or OSR rule systems, if you look at their saving throws, like the really old ones for, you know, uh, dragon fire or death or all the other ones, they typically are on a one through 10 scale. Because if you look at the lowest saving throw number and then the highest one when they're at like level 10 or so, it's usually, it raises about 10 points. That's what the range is. So once I realized that, I'm like, huh, this kind of maps onto that system as well. So another way to think about the way that Nave works is it takes that progression of about 25% chance to 75% chance that old school rules have and just uses that for everything. So once I started thinking about that way, then things started clicking more that I could run the whole game that way. Okay. And obviously it makes sense that their ability score is the modifier essentially. It's just being added on directly. Although at some point it does get combined with 10. Oh yeah. So, so basically you can use your scores passively. That's all that it's really there for. So if you want to make a roll, if you want to be active, you can roll, add your score and try and get a 16. But if you want to be passive and someone's rolling against you, what you can instead do is just take your score and add 10 to it. And now that's like the target number that they're trying to beat. So it's just a very simple way of making your scores active or passive, depending on the way that you want to play it. Because sometimes you have groups where they like the the shared rolling method, where the game master will roll some things and the players roll some things. But some people like the more dungeon world technique where the players are rolling everything. So that what you can do in Nave is you can make things all active or all passive on the fly as you need them to be. So it gives you a lot of flexibility right there. For example, you can make armor class active. So instead of having the game master roll an, an attack roll and trying to beat your armor class, instead what you can do is look at the monster's attack bonus, just add 10 to that, and now that's the the monster's passive attack number and you can roll plus your armor class to try and beat that in order to dodge their attacks so it just allows you to flip back and forth between those two modes on the fly okay and so armor class another thing that we'd recognize and is that tied back into your dexterity like it is in D? uh no so none of the ability scores 
affect anything else really. All, everything's very like discrete and separated from each other. How do we determine things like armor class and attack bonus and things like that? So your armor class is just based on what armor you're wearing. So that's just straight where it comes from. And your uh, attack number is going to be your strength if you're using physical weapons or melee weapons. And I use your wisdom for when you're using ranged weapons. Because people often use wisdom to be to mean perception. And perception makes a lot mm -hmm. of sense to me to be used at for ranged attacks. There's nothing saying that you can't easily hack the game and use dexterity instead, but that was just my way of dealing with the problem of dexterity being extremely overloaded, and it's the most useful score. I use it for almost everything. And so I was trying to take some of that and put it on wisdom, which everyone uses as a dumb stat. Right. Yeah, I believe you even had a designer's note about that, which is another thing that we should mention is throughout the book, you have these little designer notes where you just kind of explain your thought process behind this mechanic or that mechanic. Mm -hmm. And there was one in here that talked about the abilities needed to mean more. It's actually the one right below the ability. I think, to discourage dump stats. The mental abilities, you increase their usefulness. And in the case of Constitution, that doesn't factor into determine how many hit points you have or anything like that? Your actual hit points are just a D8 uh, per level. And your Constitution doesn't really affect that. Uh, your Constitution uh, more affects the rate at which you heal. So it still matters for your health, but your actual hit point number isn't directly affected by it, at least in the way that I play it. Okay, so constitution affects healing, but not number of hit points. Dexterity is being used predominantly for swiftness, not for armor class. So if AC is just determined by armor, really, is the attack then just determined by the weapon or strength doesn't factor into it? Correct. Yeah. The only thing that affects how much damage you do is the weapon that you're carrying. So I tried to make the game so that you didn't have a lot of situations where one thing was affecting another thing because that just added on like these extra layers of complexity that again, I was just trying to strip out, make it as simple as you can. But because the game is so bare bones, it does allow for a lot of uh, hacking opportunities. So I'm sure there's plenty of people who have hacked some of this stuff back in again. The game was designed to be hacked from the ground up because when you buy the game, you actually get a Word document. That's the Word document that I use to make the game. So you can just easily type your own stuff in or cut stuff out and then just print it again with your modifications. Excellent. And so anyone can easily add anything they may miss from a version of D&D &D or really any other game quite easily, which is great. So, okay. You also have some interesting features in the game, such as stunts. Uh, could you explain those a little bit for us? Uh, yeah, I just have a couple different systems in there for ways that you can add a little bit more flair to your combat. Because players, especially if you're a fighter, you often want to do something other than to say, I hit them over and over. So the way that I did stunts was just to resolve with a versus save. So basically you just make a appropriate ability check against the monster, you know, whatever that would be, depending on the stunt that you're trying to do. It could usually be strength or dexterity it would be pretty typical. And it, yeah, if you pull it off, then you just, you do the stunt. They don't cause damage directly, but they can do so indirectly. Like you pull if you push someone off a ledge and the referee gets their own arbitration as to what works. So just during your turn, you can attack, but you often get a second action because you typically get two actions per turn. So if you're in the middle of fighting someone, you've attacked them and what you can do with your second action, you're only allowed to attack once per turn. Hey, you might as well try a stunt so that people are trying other things other than just hitting the monsters in the face over and over. You give stunt as an option too on advantages in combat. Instead of just uh, having the roll twice oh yeah, yeah. you're attacking advantage you can instead roll and do a stunt right right yeah so that's just another motivation for players to think about their situation and tactically arrange things so they're an advantage whether that's higher ground or they've like blinded the monster somehow or they've ganged up on the monster so you know he can't fight multiple people at once 
Anything that stacks an advantage in your favor means you get to do more and hopefully snowball that and affect the monster even more and put it at even more of a disadvantage. In an ideal world, you maneuver a situation where the monster can't resist you, where they're helpless in some way, and you no longer even have to roll to attack them. So a lot of the game, like a lot of OSR games, is really about finding ways to avoid rolling entirely if you can. And I try to just to add a few mechanics in there to make that easier to do. Right. And that goes back sort of to uh, your instructions in Maze Rats, which are, you know, you you should try to find a way not to roll if, if you can. Yeah. And, and here you have this, the morale mechanic as well, which I think actually was also back in Maze Rats or you had something similar in Maze Rats. Yeah. I mean, like this morale rule isn't even directly tied to my other mechanics. This is the straight up morale rule from like basic and expert D&D, where most monsters have a morale stat between five and nine, seven is the average, and then you roll 2d6 when things are not going their way to see if their morale breaks or not. So it's a totally modular system that I've just taken directly out of old school D&D and plopped into here. And that's mostly just to keep things more easily compatible because that range of one through 12 for morale just doesn't map onto my one through 10 system. So I just, you know, used this. I'm not too picky about making everything fit together with my one through 10 system because I do believe in games being very modular. Okay. And as far as advancement, pretty straightforward. You're just trying to accrue a thousand XP per level, right? Yep. So I have a couple different ways of doing it. Uh, in a lot of old school D&D, you do this by accumulating gold pieces and one XP equals a gold piece. Uh, the way that I have advancement in here, it's based more on Dungeon Crawl Classics, where similar to Maze Rats, you're getting XP based on how risky your accomplishments were, like how much danger that you faced. So you can use either system. It's going to work either way, whether you want to use gold for XP or use an accomplishment system, whatever your players prefer and whatever you're trying to incentivize, really. If you want more of a flamboyant sword and sorcery thing where players are pushing themselves to get into crazier and crazier situations, you might want to reward them for their accomplishments. But if you want to push more towards exploration, then XP for gold is usually a better route. And do you have a method that you prefer when you're running games? These days, I tend more towards uh, XP for gold. So that's the way I usually go these days. Really? See, I've had a lot of people tell me that they prefer that mechanic. And I always thought it was a little silly, which is why <laughs> I thought we had moved away from it in newer versions of D&D. Yeah, it's just because, especially if you have a traditional dungeon setup, then you're going to have gold just kind of like scattered around, you know, hidden in a monster's pockets or under a bed or in a chest, just kind of all over the dungeon. So by rewarding experience points for gold collected, you're indirectly rewarding exploration. So the more you explore, the more rooms you poke into, the more, you know, monsters you avoid to find their treasure and so on, then the more, the more levels you get. And I, I like incentivizing exploration because that's one of my favorite parts of D&D. Absolutely. So we have a classless system that we're working with. So when we advance, what sort of options are available to players at that point? So similar to Maze Rats, there isn't a whole lot of options. It's mostly just hit point advancement. If you want to get cooler stuff, you're going to have to actually adventure for it. So that could be finding uh, magical items out in the wild. It could be finding new spell books and so on and so forth. One of the main features of Nave that I've forgotten to mention, but which a lot of people talk about, is that it uses slot-based encumbrance. So you have a certain number of slots for items that you hold because the equipment is actually a big deal for me and I really like tracking it. But the problem is that with most games, tracking it is a huge pain, especially if you're tracking like the number of pounds that you're carrying. No one tracks that. Uh, it's just a, a giant pain. But if you have slots on your character sheet, like literal blank spaces, 
and your constitution tells you the number of these that you can carry, it tells you the number of slots. So if your constitution is your score for constitution plus 10. So if you have like a plus two for constitution, then you have 12 slots. And that's the number of things you can carry. If you have like heavy armor that could take up three slots, some really big things take up more than one, but it makes it really easy to keep track of how much you can carry and how much space you have. So the kind of character that you are is going to depend very heavily on what you're carrying. I got a lot of ideas from Zelda Breath of the Wild, which is similar in a lot of ways where it's all about the stuff that you're carrying. So if you want to be a wizard, there's not a wizard class. Instead, you're just going to have to have a lot of spells, right? But each spell is a full-size spell book. That's just the way I conceptualize it. So if you want to have 12 spells, you're going to have to fill up like 12 of your encumbrance slots with spell books. So you're not going to be able to fight a lot because you're just you're weighed down with spell books. And if you're a fighter, then you want to have lots of different weapon options because by default, I have a system where weapons can break if you use them a lot. So you want to have replacement weapons and also different weapons are good for different situations. So you're probably going to have a lot of armor and weapons, which will take up all of your inventory. So just by default, you're going to have to kind of pick one or the other. You can do a hybrid, but you're not going to be great at either one. So just by putting that system in place, I kind of enforce class balance, if you want to call it that, because mm -hmm. players are going to have to choose what balance of fighter versus wizard they're going to go for. And then as they level up, hopefully they find more powerful weapons that are magical or better spells that they can add to their equipment and so on. Right. And I think that that's one of the most clever things about Nave is that sort of encumbrance mechanic. Because yeah, like you said, it, it is enforcing a class balance in a classless system. And I think that that's, I mean, that's, I think, always the challenge yeah. with a classless system. Okay. So if I want magic, I mean, in theory, if I, if I am a fighter, I could pick up a spell book. Right. But if my abilities are skewed toward strength and dexterity, how does that affect my spellcasting? Is spellcasting still based on wisdom and intelligence? So, I mean, if you have good strength and, you know, wisdom, then you're probably going to want to be either shooting or fighting stuff a lot. I wanted to keep this as compatible as possible with uh, original or old school D&D. So your ability scores don't really factor into if you can cast a spell or not. But there are situations where that's really useful. So, for example, if you're casting any spell that affects another person where they would normally get a saving throw to resist it, typically they're going to have to save against your intelligence score. So the higher your intelligence, the more effective that your spells are going to be, or at least the harder they are going to be to resist. And you're going to be able to resist incoming spells more easily. It, it depends on the spell. So if like someone's shooting a fireball at you, you're probably going to use dexterity to try and avoid it. But if someone's doing mind control, you're going to need intelligence. So that does incentivize very intelligent characters to go more with the wizard route, but they're not required to do it. You can still be a pretty adequate wizard even if you have low intelligence. If the person being attacked by the fireball is using dexterity to avoid it, are they say, are they using dexterity against the wizard's intelligence or the wizard's yes. dex? Now, I would okay. against the wizard's intelligence because the ability to cast the spell in the right way to try and hit that person, I would rule is a intelligence thing. Okay, so I'm a sort of barbarian character. I, I've got a spare slot. I pick up a spell book and it happens to be Scorching Ray. But going, whoever I'm shooting that at is going to save against my intelligence, which is low because I stack act on you know, all my ability scores and strength and that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. So it's just like you can, anyone can cast the spell, but you're not going to be able to use it very effectively. Maybe you just can't aim it very effectively. So people are going to be able to dodge you better. And so unlike maze rats, the spells don't just disappear. You always have them because they are inventoried. Yeah. So it works a lot like traditional D&D &D that way. Cause I wanted to keep that compatibility. All right. And then you mentioned in here that you can use any sort of old school magic and knave for that compatibility. So long as it's up to ninth level. Right. So I mean, in traditional D&D, spells go up to ninth level. That's just how high they go. And the way that I conceptualize it here 
is that PCs may only cast spells of their level or less. So that does restrict things a little bit. Like if you find like a wish spell, you can't use it if you're level one. You would have to actually be a level nine character before you can use level nine spells. Because one thing that always bothered me in the D&D rules is how the spell levels had no correspondence to character levels, which is just another thing that was really confusing and hard to teach new players. So I'm just like, darn it, our characters go to level 10 and spells go to level nine. So I'm just going to say that they correspond to each other now, where your spell levels are just what level you can cast at, depending on like your, your character level. Right. The mismatch of levels was always a, a confusing thing. I think I remember seeing a joke on the internet uh, years ago that was, you know, level means six different things oh, in D&D because yeah. nobody at TSR owned a thesaurus. <laughs> there, there was an actual discussion about that. I think, I don't know if this is actually in the AD&D book, but I know that Gary talked about it where he wanted to take like the six different meanings of level and give it a unique word for it, where you had characters had like rank, dungeons had levels, like spells had circles, and he was going to give a different name for all of these things. But by the time AD&D came out, it was just in, in cemented in everyone's head that these were all levels. And so he didn't change it, but probably would have been a good move if he had. Yeah. If um, everything in older versions of D&D made sense, we probably wouldn't have the OSR community <laughs> today, though. So, okay. So, yeah, I mean, so people can just pull spells from, you know, any sort of older game, anything that makes sense and wouldn't, you know, break the system, obviously. And then you mentioned here that they're welcome to use the Maze Rat tables to create their own spells, too, which, again, yep. would not work the same way. If you end up with Tarbolt, you're going to just have Tarbolt if you want it. You can just have that in your inventory. I guess you could just ditch the spell book if you don't like it anymore or something or, or sell it or something, right? Yeah. So, I mean, that's going to, if you're going to have any kind of spell that has, that's permanent and the sticks around, you can cast over and over again. That's going to be something you'll have to work out with, with the game master, right? Exactly. How does this spell work? How powerful it is? What level is it at? You're going to have to work out those details because it's not going to be fire and forget anymore. But it's, it's more there as a resource for the, the dungeon master. Same with the rest of the tables in Maze Rats. All of the tables in Maze Rats are system neutral. So the idea is there is that you can use them with Knave or really with any game. Okay. And then in Knave, you do provide a list of 100 levelless spells that I assume, you know, somebody could roll a D percentile on to figure out if they, if they really can't make up their mind, but you do provide that in the way of a spell list as well. Yeah, that was inspired by Brendan's Wonder and Wickedness spell publication, which is a great book where he takes most of the classic D&D spells and strips out the idea of them having levels at all and has them basically scale with how powerful your character is, which I really liked. So I tried to come up with a hundred spells and they're very short. They're typically just like one sentence long, but I try to make them pretty specific so it's clear what they do. And a lot of times when the spell is describing its effect, it has the letter L in there and you just replace the letter L with your character level. So a lot of the effects just increase naturally as you get better. Okay. And so that's how you would scale it. And in theory, you could sort of do that with the, the maze rats tables too. Sure. I mean, you could easily come up with a description like this for one of those spells. So and as you said, that's something you work out with the, the referee to make sure it's not going to break the game. Right. So, yeah. okay. I take it when you were working on Nave, given the success of Maze Rats, you were always intending to publish Nave to the greater community, right? Yeah, definitely. I, mean, I really saw that, or I felt like it had that potential to be a really good entry point because there were plenty of good retro clones out there, but even the ones that did a much better job explaining how D&D works than the original books did, which were often quite poor, there was still room for something that was much more stripped down that was classless, which a lot of people really wanted and which was really great for introducing new players because that's basically all I do is I introduce new players. Most of my mm -hmm. gaming is done with 10-year-olds, although I do get my adult games in every once in a while. So when 
I'm designing these games, that's just at the forefront of my mind, which is really great from a design perspective, because having a very particular audience in your head when you're designing helps you just laser focus what you need. It's easy to throw stuff out when you have that criteria in mind. So I was figuring if this is really useful for me, if this makes me running games for kids much easier, then it's going to have a lot of uh, applicability to other people too. And so as far as the playtesting process for both games, I mean, it, it, and you've pretty much stated this already, it was it was pretty much just, is this working with, with the kids, right? Or do you yep. also have an adult group you're running it past as well? Uh, these were all run with kids by and large, yeah. I think I ran to some one-shots occasionally online with them, with adults. But the intended audience was always kids and new players in general. So that's what I focused on. Okay. Did you have any particular failed experiments that you can remember with Nave or with Maze Rats? Anything that you wanted to work that you just couldn't get to work? Oh man, I should dig back. I think I have all of my old drafts on my computer somewhere. But I definitely had earlier systems for Maze Rats where I had a lot more things resembling feats where there was lots of different like these little special abilities. They weren't complicated, but it would be something that like, you know, you could get double damage when you attack from behind like a backstab or there's other stuff like that. And there's just a, a system of like 12 or more of these little special abilities and you would pick these as you leveled up. So those were fun. I think some people have added those back into Maze Rats and Nave at certain points as being like perks or things like that. But I just wanted to keep things as simple as possible because I wanted to keep characters eyes or the player's eyes away from their character sheets and more on the game. I didn't want them to be looking at the list of abilities they have to figure out what they should do next. But that was some things that I experimented with for sure. Okay. Yeah. And I've definitely seen hacks out there where they've built some of those class features back in or just features in general where, you know, even if it's not specific to a class, something you can pick and choose as you level. Yeah. So a lot of people are building stuff on Nave. Can you think of a particular example of something you've come across that you particularly liked? I've seen a couple of them. I, I did a review of one that takes place on an island and it's like, a, a randomized dungeon crawl, a rasp of sand. That's what it's called. That one's really interesting because it's sort of like a roguelike where you're going down this quasi underwater dungeon inside an island and there's random monsters and random rooms that you encounter. And then when your character dies, then your next character can, I think, like get their memories so they can remember what happened and it can go down again and try and get deeper. That was cool to see like the roguelike elements integrated in there. Some other people have come up with cool mechanical add-ons and ways to expand the way that the inventory slots work. So there's one called the bone marshes where they take the idea of you're traveling in a marsh where there's a lot of mud, but if you travel around a lot, then the slots of your inventory can get filled up with mud and you just write mud in those slots. And now you can't fill them with other stuff <laughs> and they can just get, they can ruin the you know, equipment that you have there. And like, that's great. There's so many fun things that you can do with that. I've seen other people do stuff where, what is it? The mouse Ritter. So that that's a game that it's not strictly a Nave hack, but it definitely has some inspiration from Nave because it has like the slot based encumbrance and they do something where you have like you can take emotions and fill up your encumbrance slots or if you're like really angry or tired those start filling up your slots you can't carry as much stuff so a lot of great things there yeah there's definitely some great hacks out there and i hope to get some of those variants on the show in the future as well as far as your future, you obviously have a successful YouTube channel and the Questing Beast blog to keep you busy, but do you have any future plans for Maze Rats or Nave? I have stuff that I'm working on in the background. I don't know if I'm quite ready to reveal them yet. Uh, people, know, okay. people know that I am working on Maze Knights, which is the theoretical follow-up to Maze Rats, which is take some of those ideas and like expands them a lot more. That's one that's kind of in limbo right now. I was working on it for a while. I have like a pretty substantial draft, but this happens to me every once in a while. Well, I'll be working on something and then I just hit a brick wall and I'm like, what I'm doing right here isn't fun. Like what is not fun about it? And I have to just like back off and do something else until I figure out 
like the fun core that I was aiming for. And then I just readjust and go towards that again. But it can take me a while to figure that out. So people who know my game design process know that it just, it can take me a really long time even to write really short games because I'll get dissatisfied with it and I'll just go over it again. But I'm sure that will come out eventually. I really can't say when though. Okay. And so is the intended goal with it to take things that worked really well in Nave and build them into Maze Rats? Is that the idea? It's not really a combination of those two things. It might have inventory slots just because that's a great system that works for anything, Mm -hmm. but it doubles down on the randomizing characters. Because what I really liked about Maze Rats, the most fun thing I think was the spell system. That's what I enjoyed the most. So I'm like, okay, how can I take that idea of getting like these random combinations of stuff that you have to figure out how to use? How do I take that idea and expand on that? So one of the ideas that I'm playing around with in Maze Knights is that you, instead of creating like a random character, which is pretty traditional, you create a random party. So each player controls like three different characters at the same time. So your party has like 12 characters instead of four, but the characters are very simple and easy to understand. They're they're very basic mechanics, but they all do very distinct things. So the combination of your three characters working together creates these new like creative possibilities with how you interact with the environment. So I'm playing around with that right now and it's been fun so far. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what comes of that. Okay, and then you said you have some other projects that you're working on, but none that you're ready to publicize yet. Yeah, top secret at the moment. People will find out eventually. I'll make announcements. Okay. Yeah. And um, do you have any other game recommendations? What are you What are you enjoying playing right now that isn't Nave or Maze Rats? Those are the main things I've been playing recently. Since the, I typically run those with my students, I haven't been in other people's games for a while. I was a player in a fifth edition game for a good, you know, five or six sessions, which was fun. I think fifth edition is really fun depending on who's running it. It can be a lot of fun or it can be kind of a slog depending on the style of gameplay. But I haven't tried a lot of new systems recently, to be honest. I've been trying different modules, a lot of OSR stuff like was more recent ones, Winter's Daughter and The Hole in the Oak. Those are really great adventures. And I've been playing old school essentials with those because they were created for, but Nave would work just as well for those. I guess that was probably the most recent system I've been using is old school essentials. But like most old school stuff, it's, it's all fairly compatible with each other. Okay. And you mentioned that, you know, you don't have the after school club with the kids right now because of the pandemic and everything. I assume most school activities right. have been shut down. So are you playing Old School Essentials online or who are you playing Old School Essentials with right now? I've been playing with my family. Yes, we've been doing some stuff online. Yeah, and in person off and on. Okay, excellent. So where would you direct listeners to go pick up a copy of Maze Rats or Nave? Those are both available either on DriveThruRPG or on itch.io. You can look up either of those places and find Maze Rats or Nave there. And the main place to follow me is my YouTube channel, which is just youtube.com slash questingbeast. Perfect. Well, Ben, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hopefully we can have you back to talk about Maze Nights in the not-too-distant future, if you're up for (laughs) it. Thanks a lot. It's been a lot of fun. Absolutely. Take care. Take care. Thank you again, Ben, for stopping by the Guild Hall to teach us about both of your widely respected OSR games. Maze Rats and Knave both provide role players with options for fast and easily understandable gameplay that is simple enough for a quick pickup game, but deep enough to run with your group long term. Well, at least until level 7. 
In any case, we believe all listeners should give both of these games a try. Especially if you have little ones in your life who have yet to face their first dragon. Remember that teaching a child to roleplay is opening that round door to a lifetime of unexpected journeys. Before we go, we at DDG Pod need to pay our dues. Theme music for our show is the song High Fantasy by the band Gygax. Additional music in this episode is provided by Alexander Nakarada. Logo design for our show was done by Elijah Nest. Special thanks to Charlie at Negative Modifier Podcast, Hodag RPG, Rico Las Weishaupt, and SL McClellan for their help in completing this episode. And as always, thank you to all listeners. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review at Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That concludes our seventh episode of Dungeon Designers Guild. So, all you solid jolly smugglers and willowy wisecracking rat catchers, we escaped again. But remember, next time, we might not be so lucky.